They didn't name it Sputnik for nothing, right? They're trying to win a race, essentially. Hello and welcome to the inoculation you just heard from Olga Dobrovidova. She's a Russian science journalist who's been published in Science Magazine and Undark Magazine. She's also a science communicator at the Skolkovo Institute of Science and Technology in Moscow. On this show, we explore how vaccination went from being a matter of science to being a question of belief. And today we're going to take a look at how the Russian government is using its disinformation machine to discredit COVID vaccines made by Western companies and how it boosted its own Sputnik COVID jab. My name is Eva von Schaper, and I've been reporting on issues surrounding health and science for the past 15 years. And I'm hosting this podcast together with my colleague, Daiva. Hello, my name is Daiva Repechkaite. I'm a journalist covering human rights, politics, and society. Today, we'll hear from Miriam Matthews, senior behavioral and social scientist at RAND, author of a report on Russian disinformation. It's been so um, massive, the, the amount of conspiracy theory and misleading information that is coming from Russia and its agents. Seb Kuban, a research analyst at First Draft, a nonprofit coalition against disinformation. Detailed. Um, specific, accurate, nuanced information can never rival sensationalized. And one of the experts I talked to is computational propaganda expert Brett Schaefer from GMFUS, a nonpartisan policy organization. Schaefer explained the strategy the Russian government uses that makes it so hard to combat these false narratives. So what we've seen is just this sort of cobbling together um, selective bits of information to create a narrative that is damaging towards Western vaccines. We also talked to Peter Stano, lead spokesperson at the European External Action Service, which is the EU's diplomatic service, and Peter Balash, a former diplomat and professor emeritus at Central European University. We just want to take a minute to welcome our new listeners. Hello, and thank you for your interest. If you like our show, please tell your families, your coworkers, and your neighbors. If you know of someone who might enjoy this show, just pick up your phone and text them the link right now. And you can also support us by sending us feedback and questions. Okay, we'd also just like to point out that if you want to learn more about the topic of this episode, please listen to who is spreading vaccine misinformation and why with Dr. Alexander Herasimenko to find out why Russia and China are spreading disinformation and how that endangers our democracy. And if you're confused about the differences between misinformation, disinformation and propaganda, please check out our episode on the 30th of April. I remember seeing misleading claims on Russia's state-run channel. Does amplification of misleading claims go further back? We asked uh, Peter Stam. This information is not new. Russia has been using it uh, since since we can remember. Basically, the Soviet Union was basically the, the first organized state-sponsored disinformation actor because the propaganda was one of the important means of uh, survival of this regime. And what happened when we first heard about the coronavirus about one and a half years ago now? coronavirus pandemic was fertile ground for disinformation because 
at the start, it was global. There were much more questions than answers. So there was global insecurity. No one knew how to handle it. And this is ideal environment for all these conspiracy theories and disinformation actors. The Russian channel started questioning the existence of the virus early last year. Then the narrative changed. Okay, you're right. And I talked to first drafts Seb Kevin, and here's what he told me about the information content or actually the disinformation content that's being spread by Russian state actors right now. From the analysis that kind of I've been doing around, um, as I said, the, the content from these these proxy sites and from Russian state owned media, it's not necessarily targeting vaccines in general. It's actually targeting specifically the Pfizer vaccine, the Western institutions that are connected to vaccines, and conversely, a more or less uh, unrestricted promotion of their own Sputnik vaccine. And there's, there's, there's been a, a lot of work done on this, uh, both by the Alliance for Curing Democracy, for example, or the Indo-Disinfo Lab, who have kind of systematically analysed uh, messaging from Russian state and media to kind of to kind of show that. So I, I think that one of the key things is is really kind of more targeting the, the the credibility of institutions connected to vaccines as opposed to vaccines as a concept itself. And what I thought was interesting to know was that do we know if Russia targets specific countries in the EU? We asked the EU expert Peter Steno. They are not that active in yeah. countries which uh, where they where they know they have no chance. Like I mean, the Baltic countries, they try to undermine them, but mostly through the Russian-speaking minority. But they are not even trying to reach to the to the others because they know it's lost cause. Because the the Baltics by default and the Poles, they will not trust Russians. They will not watch Russian media. But they play with countries like Italy. You know, they play with countries like Spain, Germany. I mean, Germany is like one of the biggest targets. I mean, out of the all the cases in our database, most of the cases of disinformation are targeted on Germany or are in German language. I think we also have to tell our listeners that we won't be repeating any of the claims made by Russian or affiliated disinformation actors, because that is one way falsehoods are spread, as we will find out a bit later. When I talked to Rand's Miriam Matthews, I wanted to know if there are specific channels which spread this misinformation in the United States. So some of the things that we identified include, of course, RT America, Sputnik, uh, associated Facebook and YouTube channels. Uh, then there's Southfront, Newsfront, um, Global Research, uh, Strategic Culture Foundation, One World Press, all of these sorts of things. Um, so multiple different sources. And I also asked her if these messages target one end of the political spectrum. Are they targeting left-leaning audiences or are they targeting right-leaning audiences? It appears more of an effort to get fringe ideas that could, some of them might appeal to the right, some of them might appeal to the left and get those out um, and disseminated to larger audiences. What is so confusing is that the Russian disinformation is not blatantly false, according to first drafts sub -cabin. Another thing I think to, to bear in mind in terms of when we say Russian disinformation is that a lot of the, the, the vast majority of 
the of RT articles, of Sputnik articles, don't contain blatant misinformation, don't contain blatant misleading uh, facts or, mis or, or false figures, etc. What they do contain is, is, is sensational, as I say, sensationalized content that, 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 that pushes a message that clearly tries to amplify wider anti-institution narratives. And that's where it's going to become really difficult because I think there's so much of the debate right now over content moderation and counter misinformation, counter disinformation measures. This is a strategy that's made for the way people consume information today. And here's what Brett Schaefer told me. But we know the way information works now. And most people who see the headline aren't going to read the story. Most people who see the tweet aren't going to read the story. So when we look at what's coming out of RT or Sputnik, it's not as if there's someone sitting in the Kremlin who's sending out a memo every day of what to publish, you know, to sort of, they kind of understand uh, the party line, for lack of a better term, and are given sort of a pretty wide area to experiment and try things. So there is coordination in the sense that everyone knows that, yes, we are supposed to talk about Sputnik vaccine in a positive light, and we we're supposed to speak negatively about Western vaccines, but I don't think there's it's getting down to the sort of talking point level. Is that a concerted action, Peter Stano? We are not saying that it's Putin doing it, because, I mean, sometimes the um, attribution is relatively difficult and legally tricky. And what I think is really scary is that a lot of these falsehoods are being spread by people who don't necessarily have a malicious intent, according to Rand's Miriam Matthews. So absolutely, a large part of this comes from people who don't know that what they, they've been exposed to is actually incredibly false, misleading, um, potentially very damaging and harmful. Um, and they just assume that it is, it is a truce. Um, and that could be because it looks like it's coming from an official source. It looks like an official news source or it uh, incorrectly says that this information came from some sort of official governor, government person or a medical individual or you know, all of these different options. And so they assume based on these bits of the messages that they're actually true when in reality, if you, if you really dug into this or you checked a source or you saw that there were these um, kind of misalignments throughout the message, um, it's, it, it would be a little bit more clear that this is false. And these individuals would um, hopefully be you know, um, aware of this more. So a lot of it is just, um, just lack of knowledge. Do we have an idea of why Russian channels are attacking vaccines? Talking to the experts, I think what we heard again and again are that there are three distinct motivations which are money, uh, inciting political division in foreign countries, and of course, Russia's own financial interest in its Sputnik vaccine. On this, I spoke to Peter Balazs, who told me how Hungary's Viktor Orban used the Sputnik vaccine to provoke other EU countries. This uh, Hungarian government decided uh, to order important quantities of the Russian vaccine and the Chinese vaccine in spite of the missing approval on behalf of the European authorities. Uh, this was again an action uh, uh, to uh, provoke uh, West European partners and to show to the world that Mr. Orban does what he wants. Uh, 
recently uh, newspapers published uh, statistics about um, uh, some problems with the Pfizer and it turned out that it came from Russian sources. So it was just uh, uh, publishing the Russian statistics uh, as if they were authentic, but they were not. And Russia, in turn, uses this in their own messaging. You know, we have seen this all this messaging also target Europe largely by looking at the supposed successes of Hungary and Serbia, who have been more willing to import Sputnik. So some of the charts that we have seen targeting European audiences essentially are saying, look, these countries are ahead of you in terms of percentage of the population who have received a vaccine. This is what happens when you, you know, drop the sort of political geopolitical uh, theater and, and port Sputnik and et cetera, et cetera. It, it allows this sort of alliance of pro-Kremlin countries to gain a little bit of strength and maybe appeal, particularly in some of the European countries that have struggled uh, with the rollout of vaccinations. And in general, the Russian government is known to be interested in sowing discord. It is this uh, rapid, massive dissemination of whatever kind of information can lead to greater divisiveness. And I think one of the things we don't talk about enough is that Russia is promoting its own financial interests. They are a essentially a business competitor for the Western vaccines, and they're very much trying to target their vaccines to key countries in the global south. I mean, Mexico ha- has been a major recipient of Sputnik, Argentina. So when you look at their goals here, some of it is just sort of this geopolitical one-upmanship, but there's also huge market opportunity here. And getting their vaccines into some of these countries that may also be looking at Pfizer or other European or American brands, I mean, Again, that can be a big economic win, but it's it's a huge diplomatic win as well. It gives them a lot of political leverage in these companies or companies, countries. If you know they're able to say we desperately need these vaccines, and Russia is able to show up with five million doses, so there's there's a lot at stake here that just goes beyond you know trying to just broadly hurt a Western competitor because they're American they really be uh, a win in it. But we also heard that the Russian government may be shooting itself in the foot by spreading negative information about Western vaccines. They are eroding trust at home. Here's what Russian journalist Olga Dobravidova told me. The criticism against those vaccines had an unintended effect of indeed suppressing the trust in vaccination in general. That is why I think it's this idea that you can just you know, denigrate your competition is toxic because by denigrating them, by playing down uh, their strengths and uh, emphasizing, perhaps overemphasizing some concerns, you end up uh, degrading the trust in vaccines in general. At the end of our interviews, I was left with the question of what can we do and what can governments do and what can social media actors do? But the problem with this malinformation is when it is technically true, most of our measures to try to mitigate the effects of, of falsehoods are, are based on trying to highlight lies. So if you talk about fact checkers 
or labeling and all of these things that the social media companies have tried to do, it's, it's hard to fact check and label a tweet that, again, it, it's sort of technically true, uh, but you really need context there. And context takes a lot of explanation. And it's hard to get across to people. If you look at the sort of percentages of people who are skeptical about the vaccine, you've got the sort of hardcore anti-vaxxers as a part of that. And to a degree, I don't think there's much government or anyone else is going to do to change their minds. But you have a lot of other people who are still able to be convinced. And when you look at sort of the world of public diplomacy, you always talk about the fence sitters. I mean, that's your target audience who really just need good information to make the right choices. I also asked Miriam Matthews why it's important not to repeat these falsehoods, conspiracy theories, and disinformation. So by telling people, here's a conspiracy theory and it's false, after, after a few days, what, what we know from uh, the psychological literature is that people can disconnect, that it's false from the message, and they just remember the message. But there are some exceptions, Matthews told me. There's some sort of message that is being put out so much and it's so, uh, so damaging that you have to directly refute it. Then there has to be a subsequent providing of information that people can, they'll glob onto that new information instead. They'll, they'll be able to connect to that because people essentially, they like to have consistency in how they see the world and their stories. And so if you take this incorrect, this conspiracy theory or this misleading message and you just say it's incorrect, that, that leaves a gap in their minds of, well, then how do I connect this information? So you need to provide them with true, correct information that can sort of fill that in, that can um, help to create uh, that consistency again. This is one thing we need to get right, Schaefer says. You know, I think if, if different groups of people are living in different information realities, that makes it really hard to have a functioning democracy. Uh, I mean, the basis of democracy is sort of understanding the facts, seeing two sides of a debate and making at least a semi-informed decision uh, based on the facts and the reality on the ground. But if we're just living in many different realities, that, that starts to erode democracy from within. So I don't think it is a an understatement to say that it's sort of fundamental to the health of democracy is getting a better sort of grip on what is happening in the information space. Okay, thank you, Brett Schaefer. That's a really, really good reminder. And that's one reason that we want to bring you more stories like this. And so to make sure that you'll never miss an episode, subscribe to our newsletter. You can find our podcast on Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. We are here for you. If you have a question or a comment, you can email us at theinoculation at gmail.com. If you want to contact us securely and send us an encrypted email, we can send you a key upon request. You can follow us on Facebook as the underscore inoculation, on Twitter at theinoculation, that's the like tango, or Instagram. On Instagram, we are at The Inoculation, all in one word. Our reporting is supported by journalismfund.eu, Media Lab Bayern, and Töpferstiftung. We'll be back in two weeks, so bye for now. Bye.